This episode of Data Nonce is brought to you by IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30 to get a free 7-day trial and 30% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Today on the Datanauts Podcast, we rocket ahead in time. Put on your favorite time travel helmet and join us as we explore commodity hardware, NVMe, distributed architectures, and of course, cloud. Our destination? The future of storage. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who believes the future of storage is the well-stocked underground shelter in his backyard, ready for when the apocalypse comes. Mm-hmm. Joining us today to talk the future of storage is Tom Lyon, founder and chief scientist at DriveScale. Tom, just uh, very briefly introduce yourself to the audience. Well, as you said, I'm founder and chief scientist at DriveScale. We've been around a few years. We do software composable infrastructure, which at first glance looks like a storage thing, but it isn't really. Previously, uh, I'm probably most famous for having been employee number eight at Sun Microsystems, but I was also a founder of Nuova Systems, which became the Cisco UCS product line. Right. So, so I've just, been just little things no one would have heard of. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've been there, done that. Absolutely. Well, Tom, let's jump into the conversation with some questions from the audience. I polled some people in the uh, Packet Pushers and Datanauts audience and said, hey, we're going to do a future of storage show. What kind of questions would you like to ask? And one question came up about fiber channel. Now, we know fiber channel networking is in a, a slight decline. There's not as much fiber channel being sold as maybe there once was. But ultimately, as we look to the future, is fiber channel dead? Well, technology never really dies, right? That's why we still have mainframes. But yeah, Fiber Channel is definitely on that path. I, I can't think of a single reason a, a new customer would want to buy Fiber Channel. Maybe they've been burned. That's, that typically comes up. I had um, a conversation with someone recently, and it was a new implementation of FC, and I kind of it kind of boggled my mind. I'm like, well, we tried Ethernet-based storage networking 10 years ago, and it failed miserably, and we got burned. And I was like, 10 years ago? That, that's like a millennium. You know? <laughs> but the uh, iPhone had just been released. Like, come on, you know? Ten years ago, you had gigabit Ethernet was kind of the cool thing, but now right. there's 100 gigabit Ethernet. Mm-hmm. The network's not really the bottleneck very often. All right, well, that, that sounds fair, because I understand when, when you've got burns and the scars are there, that, that's how we learn. But at the same time, technology moves on. I, and that's where I kind of steer into the non-technical aspects of storage networking, keeping something that, like that alive. I, I guess the question then becomes... How do you overcome in the future? You know, if you've been burned as an engineer, you know, e- either on the storage or the network side by using IP-based storage in the past, you got those scars. I guess what kind of things can we bring to the table to help move the conversation forward from that? Other than trust me, I'm a vendor. I, I always tell the truth. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you hit upon kind of the people aspect of things, and and of course, people are going to deploy what they're most comfortable with, given a choice. And so there's a bit of a generational thing going on too. Just look at the difference today between the the kids who have only ever used the cloud versus people who have to run a data center. 
and there's a whole whole range of uh, experience levels in between. But it's not like anyone who operates a cloud is using Fiber Channel. So they must know something that the rest of us don't. That's actually a really good point. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, another audience question was the implications of extending storage between data centers. Uh, I I thought that was particularly interesting for you since you deal in the world of distributed storage. Uh, As you look at extending storage between DCs, do common storage between DCs, you know, where you're sharing some kind of a data set there, does that look different in the future? What are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, this sort of gets into the whole area that I wanted to talk about, which I call application-specific storage. And the traditional model for going between data centers would be that you would buy some high-priced synchronous replication product to synchronously copy your blocks between data centers. And that really only worked at the metro level because you couldn't stand the latency to go further. These days, uh, things like object storage systems do somewhat lazy replication between data centers. So it's far from synchronous, and it's not even necessarily consistent between data centers. And there's other technologies like Cassandra that do database-type distributed database type things between data centers. And also, it only works because they can relax consistency. The nature of how you treat the storage is very much application-specific if you want to squeeze all the efficiency out of it. You said tolerant of, well, tolerant of inconsistency, depending on the application is the point you're making? Yeah. That's right. This was kind of the whole kick behind NoSQL databases is that the traditional SQL databases were very slow and didn't scale out. And the NoSQL guys could can make things go really fast by not doing some of what, what those traditional databases did. And that tends to be framed in the consistent or strict consistency versus eventual consistency, right? Where, That's right. That's yeah. Right. It, which sounds horrible. Like, I, I never thought eventual consistency. I, I know we had a talk to, I had a talk with Ivan Peplnyak talking about that with like airlines and places where, you know, potentially you're just polling data, knowing what seats are available on a plane. It doesn't have to be perfectly accurate if someone else is booking it because you can check at the time of booking. So even though it sounds kind of counterintuitive to ever have something eventually consistent when we talk storage, because typically I don't ever want you to acknowledge the right until it's written, it's redundant, you know, it's sprayed through RAID or or whatever it is, but there is a use case there. It's not as horrible of an idea as it sounds like at first blush if you're not using those systems. The trouble is if, if I'm using a traditional storage system that's working really, really hard to never, ever lose a write. But I also have to do, say, data center-level replication. So I've already caved to relaxing consistency. Now the storage system is just way too expensive for what I actually need it to do. Yeah, and budget doesn't seem to uh, to come up until after you price these things out. It's like, yeah, I need absolutely everything to be sync, fully consistent. Yeah, sure. That'll be half a billion dollars. Like, well, well, wait, wait a minute. I'm going to review my requirements again. Maybe I don't need that. Uh, That actually brings me to a thought here or or an audience question. Is there a strong use case to distribute storage across data centers versus kind of working at the application or services level to do that for you? It all depends how you define storage, right? You seem to be coming at it from the traditional, you know, I'm a storage guy in a data center point of view. But these days, you know, so many apps have to deal with being globally distributed. That's just not an interesting point of view anymore. I mean, in the sense that there's a lot of entry points to the network and, and all of those applications, no matter what the entry point is, where you're getting at them, have to be working off of a common data set. 
And so you're saying it's boring to think about the world or, or antiquated to think about the storage world from the standpoint of here's a bunch of disks with data on it and we have to replicate that. You're saying it's not that's not the world anymore. Yeah, and it well, we, we've seen this uh, evolution to where, where you know, you used to have one database and you put everything into it and everything was marvelously consistent, but it just was intolerably slow and expensive. And now, now the same thing is happening to the SAN storage systems. It's just not cost effective to do that kind of thing for, for all applications. Right. You have marvelous consistency if you have a single copy of the database, but it doesn't scale really well without throwing tons and tons of hardware at the problem, you know, let alone the lack of uh, – you're tied to a physical location at that point, which creates all kinds of fun network engineering challenges. Right. You know, the other interesting thing is storage systems used to be differentiated by their actual hardware, but now they're nothing but you know, servers with software. And the server guys and the storage guys all have access to the same actual hardware components. So more and more of the storage systems are recognized as just being storage software dressed up in some kind of hardware. Well, is that the way all storage is going to look like in the future then? That uh, you know, a distributed model based on commodity hardware? Does everything just end up there? Yeah. I mean, whether or not the vendor admits it, that's what everything is already. Sometimes they sell you the, the whole rack of stuff with a bunch of servers in it and call it one thing, but they're all, they're all the same inside. Is there any real difference anymore between direct attached storage and SAN versus distributed? Or really, we just get into the same, to the point where the performance envelopes are, no matter what platform you use, about the same, or, or you can get it to where you need it to be. Well, the, the hardware is all the same, and the software is evolving into a, a million different things. That's what's really interesting. And, and that's really what we, we leverage at DriveScale. We let you separate your servers and storage hardware, but we don't get in the way of all the myriad types of storage software that are running on the servers these days. Digging a little deeper, the perceived issue is that distributed storage, which, which commonly gets kind of logically coupled in people's mind with object storage, is slow. Therefore, if I consume distributed storage, I will have less performance available to me versus directly attaching it or, or having a, you know, all flash array, storage array, you know, dual controller type system where the perceived result is high performance. Is that true or distributed storage can largely be whatever it wants and that it shouldn't be coupled with slower performance mentally? Distributed storage is kind of necessarily slower than not distributed storage. But there aren't really very many storage systems that don't have distributed storage anymore. You can buy a single box from Pure or somebody, but it only gets to be so big, and then you're into multiple boxes, and and you have to deal with distribution at some level. Interesting. Question adjacent to that is, uh, there was a question around the tiers that will get most attention. So there's primary storage where we actually run the workloads directly and store the databases, and you know that's where the, the bits are kind of get tickled by the applications. And then this, I guess, rebranding of secondary storage, where it's really just data that's backup archive, you know, something that you're, you may be actively consuming, but the customers potentially aren't going directly there uh, by way of the application to run things. Or, or even that big data, big lake, big fog, big whatever, you know, noun you want to put after it, uh, storage for analytics and, and whatnot. Where do you think the most attention is going to be driven, especially as you talk about distributed storage? Well, I think the all flash array wave has kind of happened and that's you know kind of the 
the state of the art for primary storage. But what's really been going nutso has been the analytical storage. That's where the big data wave and just more and more types of things happening kind of in, in between what you'd call primary storage and what you'd call archive storage. Because with ar- archive storage, you really never read it unless there's been a disaster. But with analytical storage, you're, you're really uh, beating on it quite often. And so it's a whole, a whole different kind of framework. And it, it's usually way too much data to be considered primary storage. Right, you're going for the the massive scales you can hold petabytes or, or whatnot. I've not really seen exabytes in the enterprise data center too frequently, but but definitely petabytes and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, ten years ago, there were probably only a handful of people who were in the petabyte club, and now <laughs> there, there's thousands. So my takeaway was the comment: it's not interesting when Tom was talking about logically distributing storage systems across data centers, you know, we're talking about, hey, is there a use case distributing storage across DCs? And that highlights a few things. You know, there's the stretched cluster design where folks are trying to construct a floating platform, if you will, for virtual machines through, you know, various different techniques. There's the, I want to vMotion to the cloud, you know, basically a live migration of a workload from one environment to the next. And that seems to be a dream that VMware engineers are always trying to aim for. I guess you could take it two ways. It's not interesting from an architectural perspective because we've been doing it for so long, but also maybe it's more infrastructure-centric and that the interesting bits are how do we do that at the application layer rather than storage in the future. So those were some of my takeaways. Ethan, how about you? Well, the, the thing that stuck out to me was a pretty similar comment. Uh, and I, I took it in kind of a different way, but he, he made the point that legacy storage really isn't even interesting. No one's talking about that anymore. It's all about distributed, which said a lot to me because in the not too distant past, there was a lot of discussion about uh, converging storage and carrying storage in a converged way on your Ethernet fabric and everyone being really nervous about that. Oh my gosh, what if I'm losing packets and stuff? And now it's such a normal thing and storage uh, protocols and the methodology for distributing storage across different devices on the network has become so commonplace that why would you do it the old way is, is kind of how I took what Tom was saying there. It's not even interesting anymore. Everybody's doing it in a distributed way going forward, which, uh, which I thought was fascinating. Okay, Datanauts listeners, we're going to take a minute and talk about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. With IT Pro TV, you are getting the most current IT training. They have over 2,000 hours of content in their library, and they are adding over 125 hours each week. How do you get at all that content? Really, any way you want. You can stream the courses live, of course, or on demand, and you can do it from anywhere in the world. And it's they are everywhere that you are. So Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC. They're on iOS and Android with dedicated apps. So what is it that you want to watch? Well, check out the calendar. they got a bunch of upcoming courses. Some of the new ones include Kali Linux, CCNA CyberOps, CompTIA A+. Some of you are probably managing a team of people that need training well. IT Pro TV has a team solution. That gives you group pricing and then access to the IT Pro TV supervisor portal. With the supervisor portal, you can gain full control over your team's training schedule Create custom groups, give training assignments to individuals, and then see how everyone's doing, the individual and group analytics. And so if you're thinking about this, it's kind of like you don't really have a lot of reason to send staff off-site for training because you can manage all of their training with all of this content using IT Pro TV. 
Interested? Okay. Go to itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. To learn more about IT Pro TV's team solution, sign up for a free demo of their supervisor portal. That's itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30. All right, Tom, we have a better understanding and some good takeaway uh, little nuggets of gold there around distributed storage, fiber channel, you know, kind of the old crusty and the new hotness. Let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about the commoditization that we were mentioning in the previous discussion. In Ethan's world, the networking world, commodity switching hardware just meant really cheap bandwidth for those, you know, looking to leave the comfortable arms of, of their vendor hug from kind of more traditional networking vendors. Uh, and that commoditization has allowed for, you know, some pretty fast, powerful hardware from uh, the new folks in that space. What does this mean for commodity hardware in the storage world? You know, because it's you've got some components there that definitely have been commoditized, such as the, the disk, the flash, the server itself, and, you know, open source software. What are your opinions around that that space? We're going to see more of the same. Uh, hardware is just really hard to exist without commoditization these days. Because you, you can't really afford to build something unless you have outrageous volumes. And if you have outrageous volumes, it means it's been accepted as a standard. If it's been accepted as a standard, it means lots of people are doing it. So it's just kind of catch-22 for hardware vendors. I'm also kind of curious, what was proprietary in the past? Like, what were we using in storage that wasn't commoditized in the past? So I, I could think of, like, when I was setting up systems, it was setting up arbitrated lube for fiber channel and buying actual fiber channel disks for the system. But even that didn't feel special. I'm just kind of curious. Well, some of the high-end storage systems had really complicated cache structures, sort of pre-x86, doing uh, pretty amazing things with with really wimpy processors. (laughs) But now the x86 can do so much that everyone's using that. Would that be kind of like the uh, performance accelerator cards that you could get in a NetApp array, you know, with that purpose-built flash card? Yeah, there's some of that. Although, the although NetApp has always been x86. Gotcha. So they're kind of the beginning of the of the end of, of proprietary hardware. We're thinking more like IBM Shark and stuff like that. Right, right. Okay. And, and originally MC and Hitachi systems. Gotcha. Tom, you had mentioned that just about everybody's using commodity hardware, whether they admit it or not. So... What's that mean? If you peel the cover off and you look inside, you look at the disks, whether they're flash or spinning rust, they're just disks, and the server's probably going to be x86, and what, a lot of open source software, too, that maybe is at the uh, you know, the underpinnings of the storage OS that they've got? Right. I mean, that's open source is another huge wave, but it's kind of, kind of independent from the commodity hardware. But they're both very important things going on, and really... This whole thing about is it a storage system or is it just storage software, the industry hasn't really sorted out yet. So some CIOs will demand one versus the other. Some CIOs demand software, but the guys who actually do the work are still much more comfortable with hardware. And so it's, it's kind of a mess right now. There's even you know a lot of software-defined storage companies will say, yeah, we're all about software, but oh, by the way, here's some hardware we can sell, sell you with it. So the, the industry hasn't really figured out where all this is going. Well, there's been some hardware, I don't know, magic, I guess you could say, where you can stick an adapter on the end of the drive, and now it's a unique node on the storage network that can be managed in a unique way. 
Oh, like the Ethernet attached drives. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a special. It's it's not a uh, it's not a commodity bit of hardware. Well, I guess it is a commodity bit of hardware, but it's but it is unique to that vendor who's selling that solution. Well, yes, no. I I know quite a bit about those. So it's actually Marvell came up with these interposers that that the companies who are selling this thing are all using. So it, it's from that point of view, it's kind of commodity in that anyone could could get it and use it. The Seagate drive was not commodity, but that's pretty much no one using that now. If someone's looking at commodity storage, Tom, are there risks inherent in that approach where, well, like you mentioned, you know, CIOs and so on, and people with certain perspectives on exactly what it is they want to buy and what they expect that thing to be. So if it's not gold-plated with flames on the side and lots of pretty blue blinking lights on the front and it's commodity or someone might use the term, you know, white box in some contexts, is there a risk there that they should be aware of where it really is something distinct from gold-plated flames on the side? Uh, or is it just a value game now and uh, that there's nothing especially to worry about because you're getting into a commodity solution? Well, somebody still has to do the work of validating the hardware and dealing with with what happens when hardware fails. So maybe that's the vendor selling the system or maybe it's the open source software using the stuff, or maybe it's the end user who's decided to go it cheap and, and deal with problems on his own. But the, the the need is still there to to do these things, but the place where they get done has is shifting around. I think the end result there is failure. Well, I, I think failure wasn't so much assumed. Now we're assuming failure a lot more than we did in the past. That's that's guess where I'm trying that's to right. go there. That's right. Um, and and you know the storage systems would do everything to hide the failure from you. Yes, yes. The application was completely ignorant. We handle everything at the infrastructure layer, kind of like you know cradling it and saying, "Don't worry, we'll keep you alive." And now it's like, "Hey, you're being exposed to these failures, and you can kind of handle that." I, I know the the chaos monkey was was great at kind of exasperating that. Well, one one interesting example there is that the hard drives themselves were built to try their damnedest to retrieve that block when you want it. Yes. <laughs> to the extent that they'll retry for 30 seconds or three minutes or whatever it is. And the cloud guys hate that because they have another copy somewhere. They could just go, go ask it if the drive would tell it, oh, I'm having trouble getting this. Is that something I kind of got picked apart when I, when I talked to vendors about how they're doing garbage collection and what firmware they're using, whether or not it's the vendors within the SSD or the drive or their own? It sounds like that was all just to kind of clear the, the way. I just want to put blocks into a device. I don't want you to do any of your quote-unquote special magic. Stop messing with my data path. It seems like that might have been part of the commoditization as well. Yeah, it hasn't really happened. I mean, the hard drives aren't really relaxing their behavior yet. (laughs) There's this interesting trend in SSDs, the open channel SSDs, where the cloud guys want to be able to really deal with the low-level details of the SSD. And the SSD vendors really hate that because they're They'll be locked into some kind of API that they don't trust. Yeah, it's, it feels like taking the wings off the, uh, you know, the magical fairy of uh, SSD creation. Yeah. So my my message to the SSD vendors though is that the customer is always right. <laughs> well, uh, revisiting something we talked about earlier, uh, the battle scars dealing with IP versus FC, you know, fiber channel versus you know IP and Ethernet based storage networking. I'm assuming, uh, hopefully not incorrectly, that we're always going to be dealing with IP or some kind of, you know, over-the-wire non-fiber channel protocol moving forward for distributed. And the 
the thing that gets thrown about the most is losslessness versus uh, you yes. know, fiber channel. It doesn't ever lose any of the frames. Whereas IP, you know, it's just that's what TCP is doing. It's just, oh, I didn't get it. I'm going to try again. It's just now the uh, the battle field has shifted a bit where it's not fiber channel versus Ethernet. Now it's RDMA versus plain old Ethernet. Well, well let's dig into that because, I mean, it sounds like we don't need a quote unquote lossless protocol to handle these things. And there's still there was buffer to buffer credits and all sorts of ways that this was tackled in the FC world. But if we're talking about iSCSI or NFS or whatnot, <laughs> I, I guess start there, and then I'd love to dig deeper into the RDMA type discussion around losing data essentially with a, with a you know Ethernet based approach. Iscozy, you know, doesn't really care whether you have the lossless network or not. No, it doesn't. And, uh, <laughs> I've run some deplorable uh, Iscozy links, going, "Wow, no one's complaining about this, and it's dropping packets all over the place." Okay, but yeah. Anyway, we can. I know you can get away with it there, and you can construct scenarios in either situation to make things look good or make things look bad. But at the end of the day, the, the alternative to a lossy network is not a lossless network. It's a network that locks up. So if it's lossless, you're going to have spreading congestion. And so that means you'll have totally non-obvious situations where things just stop. This is the big downside with most of the RDMA stuff that's out there is you can't you can't really construct large networks and understand what's going to happen. If I'm understanding what you're saying there, there's going to be inevitably some congestion points just because of traffic patterns. And if you build buffers big enough to make sure you truly have a lossless fabric so you can overcome those uh, you know, microbursts and moments of congestion, then there's a time where packets are just sitting in transit because of buffering? Or, or are we talking about a whole some other problem? Well, when, what you mentioned is the buffer bloat problem which happens even even with lossy networks where there's just too much buffering in the network. And that can be bad because you end up with TCP retransmitting when it doesn't need to and stuff like that. But the, uh, the congestion spreading is a little more insidious and it's, you're, you're trying so hard not to lose a packet that you're forced to stop receiving more packets even from flows which are totally unrelated to what's going on. Oh, more like an Ethernet pause frame. Hey, wait a second, I'm busy. Exactly. Yeah. And so most people don't like Ethernet pause, and that's really what what all these lossless networks are built on. Now, what's interesting, though, is the RDMA implementations have shifted now, and in the latest Mellanox stuff, they actually support lossy Ethernet with RDMA. And they do that by changing their transport protocol implementation to deal with loss and, and timeouts and retransmission. And basically, it's it's reinventing TCP. So it's abstracting the the challenges of what you're talking about the the congestion spread into yeah. the protocol, rather than trying to get the source device and and the, well, and well, the target it, it, device to do it, it. It's saying go ahead and and drop the packet. So okay. instead of instead of spreading congestion, we'll deal with drop packets. Okay. Does the source know about that? Because so it's not trying to retransmit. It's just saying, hey, okay, there's a problem. Hold on a moment. You know, no, the, there's a source side buffer as well. Yeah, to to deal with the loss, the source does have to change to do different kinds of. It turns out you already had to do timeouts and retransmission when things got really bad, but now you change that to do it more often when things are just a little congested. Mm, and that smooths out the spike, so it's just more kind of a, a consistent so it, latency. Yeah, so it, it's basically doing exactly what TCP was already doing. 
<laughs> the the yeah. pendulum just loves to swing back and forth. They were just always well, and, and, the wheel. and people always prefer to invent new things rather than making the old things work better. Yeah, it's better to deal with your own new mistakes than someone else's old ones. Exactly. So NVMe is exactly the same thing there. So they looked at SCSI and said, oh, that's terribly complicated. Let's do something else. Now, of course, the NVMe standards is getting pretty far along, and it's looking pretty complicated. Well, as NVMe comes to market, it looks like that is going to be uh, a very low-latency, high-throughput uh, storage device. Does that impact the Ethernet network? Because it looks like an NVMe drive or just a few NVMe drives paired with the right PCI bus can just bury a 100-gig link, which is kind of intimidating if you're you know, a, a network engineer trying to wondering how that how, – how do you design a network to handle that? I mean, are there, is there discussion in the industry about this? Well, it's – the NVMe devices are truly amazing because you can get amazing bandwidth. You can get just astronomical IOPS. But what happens is the, the bottleneck just shifts now where the bottleneck is not anything related to the drive. It's back into the server software. Oh, I thought you were going to say network, server software. Okay. No, so, and you, know, you, can, you, you can construct cases where it's the network, but if you keep the drives close enough to the servers, it's not going to be the network. It's going to be the server software. And so we're, we're going from a world of a server having, what, maybe 12, 12 hard drives with a best case of 200 IOPS each to a few NVMe drives that can do a million IOPS each. Well, you can support a lot of servers with that. But it be- now it becomes a data locality game, though. That's right. But that's not hard to do. And the fact that the NVMe drives are pretty cheap makes it easier. Uh, again, that's a lot of what DriveScale is all about, is making that kind of thing much easier. Because there's no point to centralized storage if the servers and the storage are all the same hardware anyway. Then you know, who needs to centralize things? So, Tom, to finish off this thought about uh, Ethernet fabrics, NVMe, data locality, there's still going to be scenarios where some host from across the network is pulling data from an NVMe drive elsewhere in the network. So in those scenarios, is there a a QoS scheme that would be normal in data centers to handle that massive kind of uh, NVMe-originated burst? Well, I I think the QoS capabilities are there. In the network today, I mean, with VLANs and and priority levels, you can construct somewhat limited, you know, QoS schemes. But there's really been no proof points that any complicated network QoS has ever worked. So I'd I'd expect to see. You're making uh, Greg so happy by saying that. I'm laughing, Tom, because I'm actually working on a a, a QoS presentation. I'm going to be doing a QoS fundamentals webinar in about a week from the time that we're recording this. And that's one of the points I make in the intro is just not that QoS never works, but that, you know, don't try to solve a bandwidth problem with, uh, with a QoS scheme. That's right. And the other part mistake people make is that they, they think they understand what's going on. And so they'll give priority to something and then discover it just screws up so many other things. And so I've never met anyone who left QoS turned on after playing with it for a while. <laughs> Tom made this point of congestion spreading is how he he described it. And I, I wasn't sure if he was talking about uh, big buffers or not. I asked him to, to explain that. And no, it's not about buffer bloat, uh, oversized buffers that are the problem. It's the 
different way you can handle congestion on a network, which is to have the Ethernet switch say, hey, I'm full. I can't send it. Don't send me any more data. I can't handle it right now. And then if you get into a complex, large network with lots of points of potential congestion, he described it as spreading across the network insidiously, where you can't really even identify exactly where the problems are coming from unless you understand your storage loads and where that traffic is flowing very well and just the complexity of it. Uh, Again, another interesting challenge that comes up, this this notion of congestion spreading. Uh, Chris, what, uh, what was your takeaway? I like the comment when I was talking about constructing different environments for, you know, IP or FC or NFS or all these other lettering protocols. Uh, he said you can construct scenarios for either situation to make things look good or bad, which I think that's just a good takeaway for IT in general. And that's why we tend to say it depends. It's very a, a fancy way of saying it depends uh, when hearing a somewhat binary argument being bandied about. So then, yeah, it does depend. You could you can kind of paint either situation to look good or bad, depending on what you want. Also, I'm taking Astronomical IOPS as my new thug name. Well, Tom, let's move the conversation ahead to cloud because the future is oh so cloudy. And let's think about this in the context of public cloud first. So you've got opportunities, options within your public cloud provider to stand up their native storage, whatever they've got. And then, of course, you've got the data gravity problem. So that's one thing. Some people have a outside storage solution supporting cloud apps where you don't don't use the native app or don't use the native storage and then get trapped by data gravity. Instead, you know, connect across the cloud from this public cloud to our little public cloud of storage. Does something like that seem normal or, or interesting? Well, uh, I don't know. Data gravity and data movement are huge problems because the, the wide area bandwidth is still so expensive. And, of course, the cloud providers make it easy to move stuff to the cloud, but not so, not so easy to move stuff out of the cloud. To the extent that you can, you should, you should make sure that you're not locked into a particular cloud provider. You know, because of data gravity, you're, if you have a huge amount of data, it's probably going to all end up in one place. Well, you, yeah, you're sort of making the argument that maybe these these cloud-based storage solutions that are popping up, maybe there is a case to be made for that if data gravity is indeed that grim. So if you can connect out of your Amazon VPC over to some third-party provider and it's not Amazon storage, maybe that's a useful thing. Right. And, and, and one thing you should definitely be doing is deploying your storage in very bandwidth-rich colo centers, right? Because no, no actual on-premises building really has the bandwidth anymore to deal with this kind of stuff. You really want to be in some Equinix data center or something like that, where there's a zillion different telcos present all competing for, for bandwidth. And plus, you can get pipes right into the cloud providers, too. That's right. Well, going back to the kind of the data gravity problem, I, I know that that was why, or at least I assume that's why Amazon had Snowball and Azure has their lockbox thing, so that both Amazon and Microsoft can do <laughs> so basically send a truck just filled with disks, kind of like the old sneaker net, but on a grand scale, you know, petabyte scale to get data in and out. So obviously a very slow, but I guess if you if you do the math of time divided by storage, it's fast in that sense. That's like a Band-Aid, right? I, I guess I'm curious, how do we in the long term sense solve data gravity? Is it is it just a matter of increasing the infrastructure of wide area network bandwidth or not? Or 
because I feel like it's kind of like Jevin's paradox. As we continue to add bandwidth, we're just going to keep eating it up and always be complaining that someday we need to solve this problem. Right. I mean, even though great strides are being made in network bandwidth, it's still the costly resource compared to, to storage. Yeah. My favorite example is you know the the 250 gigabyte limit that Comcast puts on uploads or something monthly. So that's a tiny fraction of a hard drive these days. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think my phone has more storage, but but right. yeah, that could be that could be a problem. And so I I don't know what the answer is. Most most of the big players I see construct their systems so that their data streams to more than one location. So they don't they don't really try to move huge chunks from one place to the other, but they make sure that as they're gathering all the data, it ends up in more than one place. What's storage going to look like long-term for hybrid cloud environments? Is it going to be unified? You've got your, your storage local, and then it's um, either a similarly managed or an identical system that's happening in the cloud? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I, again, because of the bandwidth, I'm not sure you can really afford to keep it in sync like that between two places. Mm-hmm. But there are some applications that clearly would like it better if it was closer so it depends on where your applications need to happen what about common management i mean is there a way you can treat the storage as if it's all one you know one big pool something local and something in the cloud and but just manage it uniformly does that seem likely if we're gonna again because we keep coming back to the bandwidth problem and we can't truly unify them but maybe we can manage them in a uniform way right but but uh Common management is good, but but what you must must not do is try to hide the performance implications, right? Because that's that's the thing that fails is when you you're you're trying to hide where the storage is, when it in fact makes all the difference to performance. Yeah, the ops and DevOps, right? Well, speaking of hiding the storage, if, if there's one area in the ecosystem of IT that could benefit from distributed storage, I feel like containers might be it just because uh, there's a lot of onus to make sure that the containers are stateless and that they're always accessing someone else's storage. You don't want the storage to be host-specific, you know, DAS within the server. You want it to be some kind of namespace or whatnot. So uh, thoughts around, you know, the responsibility of orchestration systems to, to manage the storage, to attach it to a container, move it and whatnot, and, and just kind of thoughts around containers and distributed storage. Yeah, it's interesting. We're we're all over that here at DriveScale, but... Uh... Mostly today, when you think about containers, the storage system is outside the container network somewhere. And that's no good because the storage itself is a complex environment which could benefit from all the things that containers offer. And by putting it outside the container cluster, you're making it harder harder to get to. So the next step in container storage is moving it, moving the storage onto the same servers that are running your containers. But now, in the case of direct-attached storage, the storage is locked to a particular server, and so if you're using that storage, you're locked to that particular server from your container point of view. So people are putting a lot of distributed storage systems on top of DAS for containers. And the downside of that is now the type of distributed storage that you're providing may be a bit of a mismatch with what the container needs, and you're going through a lot of overhead to have a distributed system when the container may not need something that fancy. Is there a way to give it the I guess the you know data locality I, I suppose for the container it's using local resources that are still maintained from a resiliency right. perspective. Well, and my my favorite example is people who run Cassandra on top of containers. Cassandra itself has 
provisions for dealing with replication and failure and all that stuff. But quite often you see the the storage vendors showing off Cassandra running on top of their distributed storage system in containers. So now you've got that that whole very complex functionality replicated in two places. And it becomes impossible to understand what's actually going on. Mm. So, so at, at, at DriveScale, we step back and say, take the storage out of the server, but leave it very close, leave it in the same rack, and don't put any intelligence in the storage. So now all that all the intelligence can be in containers like everything, like all the rest of your apps. And your storage software itself becomes stateless because the actual storage isn't in the server anymore. Does that model lead us, Tom, to, uh, to cloud-native storage? It's another one of those terms I was digging through different things to maybe ask about for the future. That's a term that's, that's come up. I don't, I don't know, Tom. Maybe cloud-native is just like the new... SD uh, software defined and so on, but uh, but but do you think that's a thing and something a term we're going to see come into mainstream use? And, and if you are a believer that cloud native storage is a thing, what does what does that actually look like? Yeah, I think cloud native is mostly ill defined buzzword, <laughs> um, especially for storage. Because if you look at what Amazon offers for storage, you know, there's local storage, there's EBS, which is a SAN on steroids. And there's S3, which is object storage. So object storage is, is huge and is having an impact on everything. And S3 has become such a dominant API that now it is like the only interesting API for object storage. And object storage is being deployed in many cases on-premises as well as between data centers and in the cloud. So object storage is huge. But that doesn't have a lot to do per se with containers or applications. Right, yeah. One of the important things that came from the Hadoop world is this notion of moving compute to the data. And that's not something that Amazon had a way of doing until recently. But with their new Lambda-type serverless, you know, function-as-a-service architecture, when, when you fire something up based on actions in S3, the computation actually takes place in S3. So that's a lot more, a lot more efficient for Amazon. Yeah, it's certainly much easier to move a little snippet of code towards storage than the other way around. That's right. For obvious reasons. So I'd like to plop down a nice, large, maybe maybe dusty, we'll blow the dust off the top of it, uh, soapbox for you. Hear your thoughts on a, a company's coming to you and saying, okay, it's our refresh cycle is, is coming due. They've got an old SAN, or maybe they just don't like their SAN, or it's NAS. Or, you know, we'll just call it kind of traditional storage uh, from an architecture perspective. What would be the things you would want to tell them you know, looking at requirements and constraints and risk and all those those good architectural things to address as as you're potentially pitching them to look at distributed storage. Well, you really have to take it top down. You know, what's your application? What are the requirements? Yeah, you know, I, I I have a beef with anyone who claims they have a, a universal storage system because here, here. there's so so many different requirements on storage these days. It's just not possible to tune a system for all applications. You really have to take an application down and see what you're really dealing with. So question one is, what are you looking to do? That's probably a good place to start. <laughs> and of course, we, we've seen with you know, virtual machines, vSAN and hyperconverged, pretty much replaced traditional SAN. And there's a lot of different vendors doing stuff there. It sounds like one point is if you're looking to replace your SAN or, or NAS, whatever you've got, your traditional old school storage, 
you're not just going to buy a bigger version of the same thing. You you actually are looking at new new technologies and new storage models that are out there. And so you need to start over again uh, is what I'm hearing you say, Tom. Right, right. You have to take a take a fresh look. There are steps you can take, you know, like doing something like uh, vSAN or Scale.io is still very much the SAN model of things, but but you get rid of the the separate SAN systems. But all the applications are, are pretty much unaware of the change. Well, Tom, I think that brings us to the end of this inaugural future of storage discussion. Are you a, a social person where you're on Twitter or you blog? Is there anywhere out there that people can follow you? I do a few blogs on drivescale.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter at aka underscore pugs. aka underscore pugs. Pugs being my uh, nickname from high school. Oh, man, you've carried that forward a long way. All right. I'm, I'm not, I don't dare talk about any of my <laughs> nicknames from high school. That is for sure. And it's been my, my login name forever. So Yeah, you got to wear it. All right. Thanks to everyone for listening. That is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. And my articles are at packetpushers.net, the snazzy blog of chriswallacewallnetwork.com. And on Twitter, he's at Chris Wall. And for more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindle spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. If they've seen me awake, they've seen me excited. <laughs> Man, I want that on a t-shirt. As Chris giggles inside at what I think is interesting, it comes to storage. All right, good. Well, I thought it was neat that there's a data somewhere. 